James Rowland and his wife Kathy want to feed the world with crickets. That's right. Cowboy Crickets is up next on Veteran on the Move. Welcome to Veteran on the Move. If you're a veteran in transition, an entrepreneur wannabe, or someone still stuck in that J-O-B trying to escape, this podcast is dedicated to your success. And now, your host, Joe Crane. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal. Navy Federal has a mission to put your members first by making their financial goals a priority. You can receive a lifetime of membership benefits to help you and your family accomplish your life missions. It's open to active duty military, the DOD, veterans, and their family members. Navy Federal is proud to serve over 8 million members, including over 1 million veterans and their families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash VeteranMove for more information. All right, today we're talking with National Guard member from Montana, James Rollin, founder of Cowboy Crickets. James, before we get to talking about crickets, yep, we're talking about crickets today, take us back. Tell us how you got started in the Montana National Guard. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, Getting into the Montana National Guard was actually uh, one of the newer parts of my military journey. I started off as a reservist in the U.S. Coast Guard. And yeah, it was was fun. So, you know, Semper P to all those Coasties out there. (laughs) Uh, And that's how I met my wife, Kathy, as well. Uh, we were both serving at uh, MSST 9-11-03, which is a really fancy way of saying we boarded ships that didn't want us to be there in the port of LA. Nice. And, uh, you know, we we're having a lot of fun there, and she was active duty, so she got restationed, got up to Michigan, and uh, suddenly I started hating life in the Coast Guard. It got really boring really fast, being one of two reservists at my small boat station. Uh, so I got out as soon as I could. But, you know, the MIST team was amazing. Um, fast forward several years and a lot of failed businesses, uh, some more than others. And I was looking to get back into the military and try to pick us up off our, off our back really. And, uh, the military is the, the one thing that I knew was going to be there for us. So I looked at the active duty side of the army and I couldn't get it back. I couldn't get my security clearance back because of the bankruptcy that we had gone through. And I'll get back to that. Mm-hmm. And, so I said, well, heck, well, what can I do? What's the longest AIT? What's the longest training I can do that does not require security clearance? And that was a combat medic. So that's why I became a medic and ended up absolutely loving it. I loved being doc. Um, but after a while in the NCO world, I, I just thought, you know, if I'm going to do this much paperwork, I might as well get paid more. So then I went the officer route and now I'm a uh, ordinance officer with a maintenance company. Awesome. Well, thanks, James, for sharing your story. Pretty unique that you start off in the Coast Guard and ended up in the National Guard. So I want to hear a little bit more about all these business failures that you speak of, because I believe it or not, I love to hear about people's failures more than I do their successes. So if you don't mind sharing, tell us what you can, tell us what you can and what you learned from your business failures early on. Absolutely. I'm always more than happy to share about our failures. Uh, I say it's still been cheaper than gaining an MBA, so we're, yeah. we're good to be there. Um, Kathy and I have had a lot of different businesses, uh, everything from a wristwatch company that just kind of fizzled out to a uh, small 
photography business that actually did really well until we moved to Montana and I just closed it out. I was all down in Los Angeles. Uh, but the one that really taught us the most was a family fun center in Harrison, Michigan. And it's this tiny little town. There's um, maybe 2000 people in the whole, you know, quote unquote city. Mm-hmm. Uh, and our family fun center had go-karts and batting cages and arcade. Uh, it was just, it was really exciting. It was really fun. It was our first real serious business where we were trying to make that like our livelihood. Mm. Um, but, but there were some problems. We didn't do our due diligence. We didn't figure out, you know, were the numbers that were being reported to us correct? And, and, you know, how did we use those numbers when we went to buy the business? We didn't think about what the real value was, uh, and even with that, the first two years went okay. It was a seasonal business, though. So your whole year is only three months long. And mm. that doesn't give a whole lot of room for error. So yeah. when Detroit went bankrupt and uh, the Detroit Ann Arbor area started tightening up their purse strings, well, that's where all of our customers came from. They were all vacationers from there. And that meant over 90% of our customers went away almost overnight. And that third year, we absolutely failed. We lost the business, the property for the business, two houses, everything we owned. I've got a couple of relics, like a wristwatch left over from that period of time. And that's a bit. Wow. It was a complete and total reset. Um, and unfortunately, we did not go through bankruptcy as quickly as we should have. We kept trying to fight it and fight it. We knew we could pay our bills. We just thought we could do it mm-hmm. and it never worked out. About a year later and a lot of headache, uh, we, we finally filed for bankruptcy, uh, and that was a huge relief for us, a huge burden off of our shoulders and really allowed us to move on with our life and, and eventually start Cowboy Cricket Farms. Yeah. You know, thanks for sharing that. I I appreciate it. And, uh, a a lot of people have a misconception about bankruptcy. They view bankruptcy as, oh, you, oh, I'm a total failure because I've, I've gone bankrupt, but our, our system of government and our, our, our business, you know, our, our business friendly environment here in the U S is designed bankruptcy is designed to allow you to fail and to, to start from a clean slate and then, and then, you know, pick, pick back up and start over again. And so bankruptcy isn't always, you know, a, a bad thing. And, um, back when you, and oftentimes it's not your fault. Like, you had no idea that Detroit was going to go bankrupt and 90% of all your customers were going to, were going to leave almost overnight. So sometimes you're caught up in an economic cycle and it really has nothing to do with whether you did something wrong or not. So I appreciate you sharing that story. So, so talk to us post, post Michigan, post families fun center. I, I wanted to say when you were talking about that family fun center, it sounds like a lot of fun. I mean, you probably had great relationship with the community and, all this cool stuff and everybody associated with, with family fun. So it was probably a pretty good time while it lasted, but uh, unfortunately, you know, that's the way it ended. So talk to us a little bit about post Michigan, post family fun center. Absolutely. And and you're right. The family fun center was fun. Although I still can't play mini golf to this day. It just <laughs> kind of like, I, I was really good at it. It, it just, it, it hurts me to go do it because it reminds me of everything bad. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I don't do that, but, um, yeah. So after Michigan, uh, and, and after that failure, we moved back to California thinking, well, you know, I I'm from Southern California. I should be able to get another job. I'd never had a problem. Uh, I was licensed merchant Marine, uh, in the seafarers international union. 
And so I should be able to just walk into a job. And the fact is that the uh, economy was still uh, very much in a, a shrinking mode. Uh, and there just weren't as many jobs on the harbor. Um, a lot of people had been laid off or, or companies had gone under. Um, so that wasn't a possibility. Yeah. Uh Luckily, we found jobs sight unseen in Great Falls, Montana, because if anyone needs a job, I guarantee you, you can get one in Montana. <laughs> there is such a demand for people here to uh, to come and work in you know, service industries and retail and all sorts of stuff. You'd be amazed how much people make working at Wendy's here. I think it starts at about $14 an hour. Nice. Uh, which you know, down in Southern California, it costs two, three times as much, and you get paid half as much. Right. So, uh, it's a it's a pretty good place to live. Uh, so we moved up to Great Falls, and then I went into the National Guard, and that's when Kathy decided to uh, go back to school and study dietetics, which meant moving to Bozeman. Ah, okay. And so, when did crickets arrive on the scene? Well, like most things in my life, uh, that's all because of Kathy's good ideas. Um, we, uh, we were going to school at Montana State University here in Bozeman, and every year they have something called the Bug Buffet, and they're still doing it. I think this is going to be the 32nd annual this year, 33rd, <laughs> uh, this February. It's free and open to the public, and it is exactly what it sounds like, just a big old buffet of nothing but food made from insects. Um, they bring in chefs and everything. It's quite the event. Well, Kathy went to that a few years ago and came back to, and told me how excited people were and that they wanted to eat bugs and, and how sustainable it was. And I was like, no, this is a stupid idea. No <laughs> one wants this, uh, this, you know, you're, you're crazy. Uh, there is no market for this, right? There's only two reasons why people in America eat bugs. One, they're vacationing in Thailand, or two, they're going through SEER school with the military. Full <laughs> so just We've got cows and chickens and stuff. Who cares? Uh, but as usual, she was right. I was wrong. And uh, you know, there really is a market for it. It's just the infrastructure didn't exist. And, and to some extent, it still doesn't. We've increased production substantially, and we're still way behind what the market is demanding right now. No kidding. So can you walk through um, some of the, like some of the initial processes when you first got started? Like you, you actually just go buy a batch of crickets and start letting them breed and grow or how, how do you get started in the cricket business? We're very fortunate to have Dr. Florence Dunkel at the university here. She's a world renowned entomologist and is really the uh, genesis of this whole edible insect movement within the U S is, is her work. Um, so we had her, but other than that, we had no idea what the heck we were doing. Uh, no one would really teach us how to raise crickets. Uh, so we had to learn that on our own, but the biggest problem we had was as we were trying to find a commercial building to actually put this farm in. So we didn't just have to try to do this in our closet. Uh, everyone just laugh, basically just laugh us out of the building. Um, you know, if, if we said, Hey, uh, we want to do some indoor agriculture where well, their mind immediately went to weed and, uh, <laughs> they were actually usually okay with that. Uh, but then we said it was crickets and they're like, no, this is disgusting or it doesn't make sense. They thought it was a joke. Uh, but we finally found someone that would give us a shot and, uh, he's been renting to us, uh, for what, almost four years now. 
over three years. And uh, really, that's the whole way that we got started. Um, but I will tell you one really funny story about the first crickets that we got. So we uh, Montana is cold, and we started the business in January. <laughs> and so that's you know second or third coldest month of the year, right yeah. between February and March. And, uh, well, crickets, especially the species we have, Aketa domesticus, they're a subtropical species. So they don't do too well in a cold area like Montana. Mm-hmm. So we order them in, and uh, we I get home from school from that day, and there's a box sitting on the doorstep. And it says live animals. I go, oh, no, it's, it's so cold. So I open it up, pour it out, and just 10,000 dead crickets pour out of there. <laughs> and... We were, we were heartbroken. You know, we had finally gotten a place. We just signed the lease. We're supposed to be moving in in like a day or two, right? These were going to be our very first crickets. And and they're they're just laying there lifeless. Yeah. So I call the company. I explain what happened. And it was Armstrong Crickets, which is a, a really good company to work with, actually. And they said, you know, I'm so sorry. We will send them out. Make sure that you're there to receive them tomorrow. So they overnighted me 10,000 more crickets. And... Yeah. I didn't want to deal with the ones that we already had. I was just heartbroken. And so I just left them there for a little while. I come back maybe 20 minutes later and I see one hopping around. I think, oh man, look, one guy made it somehow. You know, I, I'm sure it was going to be weak and die. And I noticed a couple more legs twching. And within about 15 minutes of that, I had 10,000 crickets hopping around. They all came what back to happens, life. They all, yeah, they all went into stasis. That's what <laughs> happens to crickets when they get cold. They go to sleep and then they'll wake right back up if oh, you get no them warm kidding. again. So it was a good lesson. And uh, when we teach classes to other farmers, try and teach them how to farm crickets and process them, that is a uh, lesson we, we tell every single time, freeze your dang crickets completely or they will come back to life on you. Oh, that's hilarious. All right. Hey, James, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Within a few months when I first joined the Marine Corps, I became a Navy Federal member. That was over 29 years ago, and I still have the same account after 29 years. Navy Federal has a mission to put members first by making their financial goals a priority. You can receive a lifetime of membership benefits to help you and your family accomplish your life missions. A credit card APR average that is 4% lower than the industry's. Member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and perks. Access to over 300 branches and thousands of fee-free ATMs. They also have 24-7 live support through their U.S.-based call center. Navy Federal is open to active duty military, the DOD, veterans, and their family members. Navy Federal is proud to serve over 8 million members, including over 1 million veterans and their families. At Navy Federal Credit Union, their members are the mission. Visit NavyFederal.org slash VeteranMove for more information. That's NavyFederal.org slash VeteranMove for more info. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA. All right, we're back talking with James Rowland from Cowboy Cricket. So, James, before the break, you were saying the first batch of 10,000 showed up, left on the doorstep. You thought they were frozen. Put them inside. They start coming back to life. All 10,000 of them come back to life. Now you got another batch of 10,000 coming in the next day. So walk us from there, you know, when that first batch happened to, you know, where you are now. So there's been a lot that has happened since that last batch of 10,000 came in from the very first time that we were starting to farm crickets. We started building out these giant wooden structures in our first building. 
So the ceiling was 17 feet high. It was about 1,500 square feet. And since we can raise the crickets vertically in bins on giant racks, we could actually fit a significant amount of crickets, about 8 to 10 million crickets in this first facility. <laughs> and uh, that, that meant we were actually going to start creating tonnage, which was fantastic. Uh, our customers were saying, hey, we need frozen crickets so we can dehydrate them, mill them, and make food products. And that's what we were going to do. We were going to supply the wholesale side of the edible insect industry. Hmm. However, by the time that we had those crickets ready, uh, all of our customers had changed their mind and were saying, well, no, no, now actually we need the powder. We don't want to do all that anymore. That should be your responsibility. And that meant that we had to have a, a licensed commercial kitchen which is extremely expensive, mm. takes a long time to uh, build, and we, we simply didn't have any area. More importantly, when we approached the county, they said that we couldn't because of the water restrictions on our property. So suddenly, we had all these crickets that most places didn't actually want to buy. So we did what we had to, and we made that commercial kitchen. That was funded almost entirely through grants from the Montana Department of Agriculture, who has been a enormous, awesome supporter for us from the very beginning. Um, and, and that's how we actually started making the cricket powder. Wow. And the, the cricket powder, how does that compare to flour or how are you able to integrate that into your, into your own personal cooking? Like what, what exactly can you use the cricket powder for? The cricket powder is extremely versatile. Uh, you don't use it as a one-to-one for flour. Uh, mm -hmm. It doesn't have any gluten in it, and so it won't hold together. Plus, the texture and the flavor are a little bit different, obviously, than wheat flour. Uh, but you can replace about 10 to 20% in any recipe, and then you don't have to change anything else. But you get a ton of extra protein, fat, and iron. Uh, so it's a lot of nutrition in a very small, small package. Uh, and that's actually how we started with our chocolate chirp cookies. Um, <laughs> we made them as a way to show what you could do with the powder. And, you know, we put a funny little name on it, a nice little pun there. Uh, <laughs> and we brought them to that same bug buffet a year after we had started this whole process. So we're, we're one year into this and um, we go to the bug buffet and we've got these cookies and little cellophane wrappers with homemade uh, labels on them. And the whole idea was we would auction them off just as a way to communicate with the customer and help support the bug buffet. However, before that auction could happen, all of them hopped away on their own. <laughs> we, yeah, they were all stolen. So really? we thought, man, if, if people will steal these cookies, maybe they'll buy them. <laughs> so we, we started just as a way to get a little bit more money in the door and, and kind of see what would happen. We worked with a small bakery around here. We didn't have the ability to bake anything yet. And we, uh, we started seeing if we could sell these cookies. And, and suddenly we were selling hundreds and hundreds of these cookies. And it became a much better way to use the powder. Uh, and that is actually what spawned our movement into the consumer product goods side and, and all of the many, many products that we have now and many more coming out next year. It all started with the cookies and them getting stolen at an event at MSU. So 
the the cricket powder isn't isn't a substitute for regular flour or wheat flour, but correct. Just substituting ten or twenty percent cricket powder for whatever other kind of flour you're using, like that's enough to make it worth it to people. Um, you said it doesn't really replace the flour by any means, but just by using ten or twenty percent, you add so much more protein and and iron, and it, it just makes it, it makes the cookie actually a little more healthier. Correct. Uh, so the powder itself is about two thirds protein. So imagine if you put 10 grams of powder into something, that's about six to seven grams of protein that you just put in it. That's huge. Yeah. Cause typical flour, especially like what, you know, enriched white flour really doesn't have hardly any protein in it. I don't even know if it has any at all. Correct. Usually not much protein, a yeah. little bit of iron and cricket powder is twice the amount of iron per pound as beef. So it's a great way to get a lot of different nutrition and nutrients into your food. You know, I've, I've talked with a lot of people, you know, like some of our Bunker Labs events here in Kansas City. I bought a big box of, uh, of your crickets, and they're always, they always make a great conversational piece at, at Bunker Labs meetings and Bunker Brews events and that kind of thing. But a lot of people doubt that you can raise enough crickets and get enough poundage or whatever economically – you know, you can't re- replace in flour or whatever. Can you talk a little bit about that as far as the doubters are concerned and whether it's economically feasible to raise enough crickets to make them you know, profitable? Absolutely. This is, a, this is an issue that we see in the industry quite a bit, including our company, mm-hmm. is trying to be cost competitive with other forms of protein. Mm -hmm. And the blatant truth of it right now is we are not. Uh, But it's still a young industry and it's a small industry. And as we scale, we will be able to be much more competitive. The other thing that we're doing though, and part of the reason why it's so expensive, is we make sure that our farmers are taken care of. Our farmers get paid $6 per pound for frozen crickets. To put that in perspective, uh, one of our farmers is a chicken farmer. She gets paid, I think, about 17 cents per pound for chicken. So, mm-hmm. you know, now she's raising a lot more chickens than she is crickets, but still $6 versus 17 cents, uh, we pay extremely generously. Uh, but that also means that, you know, we need to recoup that somewhere. And by the time you dehydrate those crickets, they leave lose about three quarters of their weight to water. So now it's costing me $24 a pound, not to mention labor, electricity, just overhead for the business. Yeah. So it pretty easily cost $28 a pound to produce that powder. Um, and as we scale up and we can start making things more efficient, spend less time making that product and ultimately have the farmers actually receive less compensation per pound, uh, largely through automation, then we're going to see that price drop. And I honestly believe in the next five to 10 years, we will see p- cricket powder on the shelves for about $15 a pound retail. Wow. And flour is probably way cheaper than that. But again, you're not really comparing you know, apples to oranges here. Right. It would, it would be unfair to do that. A better comparison would be talking about organic hemp protein or pea protein isolate. The problem with any of those, though, is you're isolating individual proteins. It's not a whole food. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you're manipulating 
the food quite a bit. With crickets, we simply freeze, dehydrate, and mill. So with cricket powder, with our cricket powder at least, you're getting all the nutrition from that entire insect uh, versus those other forms of uh, protein or even versus the cricket powder from our competitors who heavily process it uh, and remove a lot of that nutrition and therefore the flavor as well. What are the big ticket items as far as cost in getting the crickets to powder form? Well, your first thing is just farming them. Space. Uh, ultimately, you, yeah, it's space. You need a big building that's very well insulated. And depending on how big it is and how much money you put into automation, you may also need a decent sized staff. It doesn't take a whole lot of people. Our new facility is uh, going to have a five to 7,000 square foot farm. And in that space, we are only going to need two people to run it, but they're going to be working their butts off. Yeah. Um, and once they're actually raised, then you need to freeze them. That's a large commercial freezer, costs eight to $20,000, depending on the size. Mm. And then from there, you need a commercial kitchen, which can cost easily $100,000 to build. Uh, and then the special equipment is a, a dehydrator. You can get those anywhere from about five to $15,000 for commercial units. And then mills, uh, mills range anywhere from about 2000 to 20,000. So, you know, you start adding up, even on the low end, you're talking about a lot of money that you need just to produce that very first pound of powder. So there is a bit of a barrier to entry, uh, but ultimately the biggest barrier to entry for the entire industry is education. No one knows how to do this. And so we've been teaching people how to farm crickets and learning from our mistakes. Instead of taking two years to get it right, uh, you know, they take about four or five days and they leave here knowing basically as much as we do. So in addition to moving into a much larger facility than you started with, you're also educating and basically getting other, other farmers to start raising crickets for you and just buying their crickets from them. Correct. Uh, we have our network of partner farmers that we've been operating for about a year and a half now. And we started it only out of necessity. Again, we didn't want to do it, but mm-hmm. ultimately we had to just to produce enough. And the the network is now creating about 90% of our insects. Uh, with our new facility opening up, it'll it'll reduce a little bit to probably about 60%. But then mm-hmm. as we bring on more farmers, again, it'll it'll increase. Uh, so we're taking that, and and while our competitors are trying to hold all the profits to themselves, we're actually giving it away to other people. We're saying, look, you go raise the, the bugs. We're going to teach you everything. We're going to guarantee to buy everything that you produce, and in return, we get a stable supply of perfectly raised crickets to our standards using our feed and our methods. Yeah. And so far, it's been a really, really good program for us. And probably a lot of current farmers don't have the barrier to entry as far as just raising them that somebody just, you know, wanting to start from scratch would have because they they might have barns and large square footage facilities and that kind of thing already. They got the land. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of the farmers that we deal with that are already in agriculture, it's really not a whole lot for them. It's like, oh, you know, another twenty or $30,000 of equipment and I'm done, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, is, is easy enough for most large farms to, to fund, uh, cause they already own the buildings. Maybe they have a hundred thousand square foot chicken coop or a 10,000 square foot chicken coop <laughs> that they can easily convert over. 
and that's one of the cool things about cricket farming is it's so adaptable because your livestock is so small that you can fit it basically anywhere. You probably can't raise crickets and chickens together though. Uh, no, no. The, the chickens will reduce your population drastically. <laughs> they love crickets. I'm sure. That's what I was thinking about when you were talking about that, Gail, raising chickens and, and crickets. But um, so what when you, are you based? So you guys are taking all the crickets from all these farmers. I be, did you say 90% of your supply is really coming from other farms now? That's correct. Okay. So you guys are the main processor or you're the, you're, you are the processor of it into powder and mo- most, what percentage of your business is just selling the powder to what well, I mean, I'm assuming, you know, organic and health food type or places, that kind of thing, Trader Joe's and, you know, manufacturers of food for those places. You know, selling the powder itself is a tiny portion of our business. I probably sold... I don't know, two to five thousand dollars worth of powder last year. Um, so not a whole lot. Most of what we sell now are actually the uh, value-added consumer product goods. So our chocolate chip cookies, our new Cretaceous Crunchers, which are granola, <laughs> the jumpers, which are uh, flavored crickets, sell exceptionally well. We've sold thousands, tens of thousands of those this year. Um, so that's that's where almost all of our crickets go is into our own branded food products. Yeah, and I've had I've had the smoky ju- is it the smoky jumpers? Yeah, those are my favorite. Yeah, those those are the best ones I think. You know, some of the other ones you have like a citrus or something like that. Um, we have tropical, tropical wasabi, yeah. cinnamon, and original. Yeah, and so I didn't even look on the package, but I remember you saying six bucks a pound from the farmers. You can probably you can get, you know what, six eight bucks out of a little pouch that has maybe a couple ounces of crickets in it. So, and and people don't even think much about it because they're buying crickets. You know, it's like they don't really think about. Um, yeah, six bucks. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And we've been able to retain very high margins because of that. Uh, our jumpers have uh, a little over a seventy percent margin on average, mm. uh, which in the food industry is exceed. I mean, exceptionally high. Yeah. Uh, and what's nice is since we're such a small company and our production isn't very high, at least compared to demand, we have to find a way to balance that out. So instead of selling them for $3 a pack, if we sell them for 6 it reduces how many orders we get. Um, but we always sell out. So you know, we, we take that extra capital, we take it back into the company, and we invest more infrastructure. Because the larger we can grow this, ultimately, we can create more crickets process them more efficiently, and most importantly, feed more people, which is our whole mission. Man, well, that's awesome. Well, hey, James, um, getting close to the end of our time, a couple things. How does somebody find you, whether whether they want to talk to you about raising crickets or whether they want to order some smoky jumpers off your website? Well, cowboycrickets.com is always open, so you can go there. You can find us on Amazon. Just look for Cowboy Crickets, and you'll see a whole bunch of our different products. Uh, all the social medias, at Cowboy Crickets. And if you're in the Bozeman area, anytime after February 1st, 2020, you can come to our all new facility, open to the public, take a tour of the cricket farm and see all of our interactive exhibits and other live animals that are there that all have to do with edible insects from around the world. Oh, no kidding, man. That's an awesome idea. It's, it's almost like a, a tasting room. 
Do you have yeah. a tasting room? <laughs> oh, that's that's the way. Maybe that's how we need to market this. It's oh, you definitely need to have a tasting room it's with tasting the visitor room. center. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like the brewery, I, you know. <laughs> oh man, like the Jack Daniels tour, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, everyone gets a sample, but it doesn't mean we can't have a little sign there. Yeah, so exactly. All right. Well, hey, um, and, and one final thing, you know, you've been through a lot. Um, business, a lot of different businesses, failures, and you know, ultimately bankruptcy and everything. If you're talking to, you know, that that person that's still in the military, looking to get out, going through a transition, military spouse, and they're looking to start their own business, what kind of advice would you have for them? I'd say two things. One, product market fit. If no one wants to buy it, then you're probably not going to have a business. And I mean, I know with our, you know, weird products that we sell, that seems like an odd thing, but we actually made sure people did want to buy them first. Right. Uh, we were just surprised that people wanted to. So product market fit. And the second thing is if you were in the military, then you already have all the tools to be an entrepreneur. You're a self-starter. You're used to getting small amounts of sleep, uh, you know, not not very much pay, especially if you're one of those lower enlisted guys. I get paid fairly well now, I guess. But um, and uh, you you are willing to work hard until the mission is complete. Too many people stop because the road gets tough. And entrepreneurship is an extremely tough journey, but it can be a rewarding one. And our military personnel know how to get through tough times and simply embrace the suck and keep moving on. And that's the absolute best thing you can have going into your own business. Awesome, James. I'm motivated now. All right. I appreciate that. Hoorah. Hoorah. All right. Hey, um, yeah, great way to end it. Good motivator. Appreciate you being here, and uh, we look forward to your future success. We'll have you, have you back in a year or so and uh, see how the new facility is working out for you. I'd love to. All right, James. Looking forward to your future success. These two veterans are Oscar Mike. Thank you for listening to Veteran on the Move, your pathfinder to freedom. If you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes. Reviews are always greatly appreciated. So until next time, this veteran is Oscar Mike.